Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Sorry there was a gap last week and there was no podcast. I figured everyone, at least those in the U.S., were getting back from the Thanksgiving holiday break and had lots to do. I also spent most of the weekend writing the year-end summary of autism research for 2018. Now, I complain about this a lot, but secretly this is one of my favorite activities of the whole year. I have the unique opportunity to have time to go back, reflect, and identify articles and scientific advances that help families. Then I put them together in a way so that you all, who don't have the benefit of an entire weekend of such reflection, can understand the impact of the full year of research. Of course, the podcasts help keep track since I can't rely on my memory anymore. And while we're on the top of Thanksgiving, I'm thankful that there are people out there that listen to this weekly podcast. I can't let another week go by without addressing the new news from one study that the prevalence of autism is now 1 in 40. Wait, well, maybe not quite. I mean, maybe it is 1 in 40, but don't believe that just from this article. The CDC numbers use medical diagnosis and educational files of people to ensure an autism diagnosis. This did not use that. This used something called the National Survey of Children's Health. And this survey calls up families, actually now they email families, and ask them to fill out a series of questions about the health of their children. They include information on a total of about 50,000 kids. And if a special health need was identified, parents were then asked to fill out another questionnaire addressing more specific questions about their needs. It doesn't just focus on autism, but it does include a question if a doctor or other healthcare provider had ever told the parents that their child had, quote, autism spectrum disorder, including diagnoses of Asperger's or pervasive developmental disorder, unquote. Parents who responded yes were subsequently asked if their child currently has the condition. For this analysis, children identified as having ASD were those with a parent report of ever told by a doctor or other healthcare provider that they had ASD and that they currently had ASD. This may sound crazy, but about 7% of those that said that they had an ASD also said that their child no longer had an ASD. Now, I'm not sure what that means, if they had what's called optimal outcome or recovery or what, but they excluded those kids from the analysis. They ended up with about 1,100 families with a child who had and has autism. The study did a few things. First, it calculated the prevalence of autism to be 1 in 40 or 2.5%. Now, why is that number higher than the CDC number of 1 in 59 Well, traditionally, for this survey, the prevalence numbers are always higher than the CDC numbers. That's most likely because they ask the parents, not check records. You can make the argument, like many have, that parents know their children best and that medical and educational records may underestimate the prevalence number. You can also make the argument that you can only trust a diagnosis with documentation behind it. Recent evidence this year has shown that community-based diagnoses not using the gold standard methods tend to inflate prevalence numbers. That was on a different podcast. So there are different numbers, but given the difference in methodology, it's amazing that they're even close. I mean, 1 in 40 and 1 in 59, that's different, but they're close. I'm actually not so concerned about the difference between the numbers, other than the way you ask the question and the way you record the data do seem to have an effect on the numbers. And I'm actually not going to nitpick on the numbers either. Is it 1 in 40 or 1 in 59? It may be somewhere in between or maybe even higher than that. I do believe, even with all the changes in the way autism is diagnosed, assessed, interpreted, that there still is room for a real increase in prevalence, and we don't know why. 
there are probably lots of things going on. This has been addressed before. The prevalence may be closer to like one in 38, like is in South Korea, because they assess autism in a different way. I'm sorry, but just based on prevalence, this study doesn't really provide me any new information. What I really want to concentrate on are the increased rates of medication use, increase in doctor's visits, but also not receiving the right help that they need at any medical visit, and especially the increased rates of unmet mental health issues in those with autism. Those with autism had a 63% rate of unmet mental health needs. Those with behavioral disorders and mental health issues like ADHD, anxiety, learning disability, and depression, but without autism, had 42%. And those with no behavioral disorder had about a 10% rate of unmet, unmet, unmet mental health needs. Families with autism do, however, seem to get referrals for help. Those referrals just don't seem to provide the help that they need. They have a harder time getting to the right mental health care provider. I don't think this is something that has been looked at before. Yes, comorbidity with others disorders has been examined, but the struggles that families experience in getting mental health care has really not been explored. This study really illustrates that not just how people with autism show comorbidities with things like ADHD and anxiety. And by the way, a gene associated with ADHD was just shown this week to be one that's associated with autism. And there's a lot of evidence of overlap genetically between the disorders. But the struggles of people with autism may be unique. One thing I found somewhat disturbing is only 64% of people with autism receive behavioral interventions. Why is this not more? Because behavioral interventions are not just ABA. They're social skills group, they're hiking and yoga, they're speech and OP, and they're also equine therapy and everything that behaviorists use to minimize problem behaviors. Now, I don't expect it to be 100%, but I did think it would be higher. It was depressing because every time I do a year-end summary, I try to highlight accomplishments, but the documentation of challenges people face really brings me back down to reality. Another issue facing parents with autism is regression, or the loss of previously acquired skills, usually language. A new summary paper this week about what researchers need to do to better understand regression points to more prospective studies. Those are ones that you follow the child with autism all the way before they were diagnosed with autism until anywhere between adolescence and adulthood. If you go back and ask parents if they noticed a regression, about 30% of them say yes. However, that may actually be underestimating how many children show a decline in function because parents probably take note of huge changes, not necessarily slower and a more gradual decrease. Asking parents to recall may only bring out some of the more severe cases, and the tool to measure regression is literally one question on something called the Autism Diagnostic Interview for Parents. Alternative approaches like more detailed interviews and repeated use of parent report checklists of current behavior and health professionals' ratings of social communication and engagement during routine visits to track changes over time may provide more sensitive measures of regression. Good luck getting that, but it could be better. Also, looking at growth charts, while problematic, may actually help identify a loss of function. Regression may be linked genetically as those with rare genetic syndromes like Phelan-McDermid syndrome, Rett syndrome, and mitochondrial disorder have a much higher rate of regression than idiopathic autism. They're upwards to 50 to 60%. That means we need more research on these genetic disorders to find a biological mechanism. Another group to follow are the infant siblings who are followed during this critical time when regression may occur. This is the prospective study I mentioned. 
This group is likely to be able to identify slower loss of skills or even a slight loss of function, especially in language. By being able to do so, there's an opportunity to intervene at critical times to regain skills lost during a period of decline. Careful documentation of recovery following aggression with description of support, such as parental prompts or structured interventions, may help elucidate resilience or even protective factors. It could allow measurement of the effectiveness of behavioral interventions in comparison to, say, what normally happens during development. Also, if it were possible to identify early losses as soon as they occur, this may have practical implications when you target interventions. For example, if it were possible to detect early decreases in social engagement for kids that there was a concern for, this might be able to identify those who would benefit from a specific intervention. But one thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a new definition of regression or everyone needs to accept the same definition of regression so that there's consistency. Right now it means loss of a pre-existing skill, but what about loss of skills that were not fully established already, maybe just partially established, like speech or social skills? These things, including social engagement and early developing skills, sometimes are harder to capture using parental report, but could be detected otherwise. There may also need to be, in addition to the yes-no of regression, there might be dimensional, so like to what degree was there regression. We also definitely need more measures. It may not always detect regression in the same way. This all points to the hope that earlier intervention will help reverse declines in function, which is what parents report with ASD, at least some of them. Thank you for listening this week. Next week or the week after, I can't promise you, we're having a special interview with Dr. Avi Reichenberg, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, who's going to talk about what gene-environment interactions are. It's so elusive. Thanks for listening.